Be still, my love, be still. Bind tangled now. A Gnomans Podfic, read for you by Arkafira and George Stoner. Chapter 2 Aziraphale finds the languid stillness of this quiet space between wake and sleep to be strangely calming the more he visits it. Other people have described sleep paralysis as terrifying, their half-awake minds conjuring disturbing images to explain their inability to move, inventing an unseen menace that bears them ill. Aziraphale's menace no longer hides himself in corners, but wanders his room, or settles on the bed beside him. Always talking quietly, questions that Aziraphale won't be able to answer until morning, observations that he can't laugh at or make interested noises to. But Crowley doesn't seem to mind. He still seems thrilled just to have Aziraphale's attention, to have his company. After all, the demon has spent years, possibly centuries, with no one to talk to. Aziraphale imagines he's been alone with his thoughts for a very long time. Though it does mean that Crowley's developed a conversational style entirely his own, often disjointed and rambling, prone to interrupting himself. But his enthusiasm and delight at discovering new things is infectious. He's brutally honest, occasionally witheringly sarcastic, and much more intelligent than his easily distracted dialogue would suggest. Aziraphale has found himself utterly charmed by him. Crowley's clearly reluctant to share anything of hell, a place whose existence Aziraphale must now come to terms with, but the demon will offer snatches of memory. He'll tell Aziraphale about the places he's been, the things he'd seen in his long, lonely years on Earth. It seems to somehow make it all the stranger that he's here with Aziraphale now. You left your glasses on again. Crowley tuts and gently takes hold of the sides of them with his warm fingers, draws them free. Aziraphale feels them slide away from his face, the uncomfortable pressure easing. He watches Crowley shut them and place them on the bedside table. How many times do I have to tell you? You'll break them if you're not careful. There's a quiet hum and the briefest touch to his waist, there then gone, almost too quick to register. After it comes the tickling trail of hair, always sliding as if the shiny lengths of it are being pulled by unseen hands or searching their environment, like the sinuous bodies of serpents. It seems to move independently of Crowley either way, but Aziraphale has never felt threatened by it. I think you like me taking them from you, tidying you up for the night. You'll have me slipping you into your pajamas next. The demon seems to think better of that line of conversation, biting down on it with a sigh and a dismissive noise. Crowley leans over him, leaving the scent of matches and metal and something slightly spiced, arms stretching as he settles what looks like the last book Aziraphale had recommended to him among the pile he'd taken to bed, where there now also resides half a glass of wine, as if the demon had been indulging while he watched him sleep. Something of the thought must show on his face because Crowley gestures at the glass. I like the new wine you bought. This one's a fruity one, 
Not so much dirty barrel on the tongue. The cheek of it. The demon shoots him an amused look, as if it was mostly said to tease. Don't think I can't hear you tutting at me right now. You don't have to wait until morning. I can see it perfectly well. Aziraphale attempts to look as if he's thinking nothing of the sort, but fails completely. Crowley's eyes miss very little, though conveying anything at all, reliably, is still an awkward and frustrating matter. I finished the importance of being earnest. Aziraphale can already tell by his tone that he wasn't a fan. He likes to imagine he makes his next flat exhale sound like a sigh of disappointment. It appears that wild is not a passion they are going to share. Crowley shrugs, and Aziraphale feels the movement more than sees it, a gentle jostling of his body on the bed. It was fine, I guess. All the subterfuge was all right, but it was a bit unnecessarily complicated and waffling, and the resolution hinged on far too many coincidences. I suppose it helped that everyone in the book was a bloody idiot. But I didn't find it as funny as some of the others you recommended. Certainly not as funny as A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare at least knew the value of entertainment in punishing people for their own stupidity. Aziraphale resolves to come back to this in the morning, suggests that Crowley likes his humor to be loud and obvious, which, he suspects, the demon will find vaguely insulting and will use as an excuse to judge Aziraphale's taste in turn. Aziraphale will retaliate by adding another four books to his list of recommendations, which Crowley has grumbled about, but not objected to yet. Did you know that Shakespeare made up a bunch of words himself, just for fun, and then people started adding them to the language like they'd always been there? You probably do know that. I'm fairly sure you have copies of all his work. He got shit for it at the time, but I mean that's the essence of language, isn't it? Someone looking around and going, you know, there could be more words for things no one's properly described yet. Like lonely. That's supposed to be one of his. How appropriate, Aziraphale thinks, though his brain helpfully provides a few that could have done the job before. Desolate. Abandoned. Solitary. Unremembered. Forsaken. Crowley twists around until he can rest against the headboard next to him, careful not to press into him too much, one leg swinging off the edge of the bed. I was sent to vex one of Shakespeare's actors once. He went on about the man constantly. He was certain Shakespeare had a whole brace of mistresses. Too greedy to have just the one, no, he had to have a brace of them. Of course, the man was also a jealous, drunken brute. So I never believed a word he said. Bastard used to mistreat his dog, too. So I'll be honest, I don't regret standing over him at night, looking like the half-skeletal ghost of his father, until he eventually drank himself to death. Aziraphale doesn't feel as if he has the right to judge. Nurturing and collecting the wicked was Crowley's job, after all. And it was the 16th century. A fact which still throws him a touch if he dwells on it too long. I wanted to keep the dog. Crowley adds. I liked him. He never seemed to mind me wandering around the house at night. Most animals can sense what I am. Sets the hackles up right away, it does, and they go mad at the walls or cower in their beds. But this one, I think he was just happy to get petted by someone who wasn't going to kick him later. He didn't care if I was a demon. Yeah, I couldn't work out a way to feed him, though. 
or at least had to go out and buy him food. I think the boy who did the props took him eventually. There's a long brush of a bare foot against the floorboards. I've not reached the end of your list yet. Unsurprisingly, since you change it on a whim every day or so. Aziraphale would huff at him if he could, because honestly, he's not changing it on a whim. He's honing it into something more crowly, as he learns more about him. Aziraphale should have known at the beginning that the demon would require something a touch more obviously scandalous and action-oriented when he made the original list of recommendations. He's proven himself far more a fan of the ribald ones than Aziraphale so far, but then he supposes that Crowley is a demon, even if an unconventional one. The lechery probably appeals to him. He's also learned through careful nudging that Crowley appreciates mysteries, disguises, mythology, a healthy dash of unseen menace, and car crashes. He also seems to prefer happy endings. Though, having spent more time with him, Aziraphale finds he's not entirely surprised by that. Of course, their conversations about literature are, by necessity, rather delayed, with Crowley giving his opinions, comments, and scathing analysis in the 11 to 26 minutes that the paralysis lasts. It's always shorter when the demon loses concentration. Their conversations are sometimes rudely cut off entirely when Crowley startles himself into laughter or finds himself wallowing too deeply in an unpleasant memory, of which there appear to be far too many. Aziraphale chooses never to press on those places when he's awake, when he's talking to the heavy, attentive air in the bookshop and imagining the demon's unexpectedly expressive face or curious eyes, his rude noises of disbelief, the way he'll fidget constantly. Aziraphale likes to think he can sometimes make the demon smile where he can't see. It does feel a little unfair, though, that Aziraphale has all day to process his thoughts, to idle away hours sharing passages from his favorite books, while Crowley only has the moments where he can squeeze himself into the gaps, words always hurried, always forced out in spits and bursts, as if he knows he doesn't have the time as if he has more thoughts, more ideas, more questions than he can bear, and tries to voice them all at once. But weeks have dragged on like this, far easier than he could have ever imagined. Crowley doesn't visit him every night. Some nights Aziraphale doesn't sleep, or he sleeps poorly, perhaps not deeply enough for his body to truly relax. He's more aware of Crowley in the bookshop now, though, the slithering, raspy hiss of him across the floorboards and shelves, which he's noticed is not too dissimilar from the drifting pull of hair. The demon's not bound here, not bound to him. Aziraphale had been worried, at first, that he'd been forced to follow the small, leather-bound book that had his name scratched on the cover, the book that leaves Crowley unexpectedly quiet, as if unwilling to admit that he's the one who sketched the plants inside though Aziraphale can't help but feel that he was. The idea of a demon that has interests has soft places that can be just as vulnerable as his own. It's a strange thought, but one that warms Aziraphale somehow, that reassures him when he occasionally worries that he'd let this strange, easy friendship between them accelerate much too fast. 
that he's been reckless when even Crowley sees fit to remind him occasionally that he's a demon, that wicked deeds are his nature. Crowley would be the first person to call himself a fiend. He'd be the first person to insist that he was not to be trusted. Though Aziraphale has seen no evidence to support that, the only wicked deeds Aziraphale has found him guilty of so far is emptying half his wine bottles and leaving the occasional crumb-filled plate on a random stack of books. No, if anything, there's a nervous uncertainty to Crowley, as if Aziraphale's opinion of him matters, as if he's constantly waiting to be told he's done something wrong, or that he's unwanted. It feels sometimes like he assumes Aziraphale's friendship is conditional, to be rescinded at the first sign of conflict or ill behavior or boredom. Aziraphale dislikes the thought immensely and has attempted to coax a few of the demon's more scathing opinions to the surface lately, to encourage him in his teasing and his banter. It seems to come naturally to him and pulls that thin but expressive mouth into a smile more often than not. He tells himself that the demon has never had a friend before, never learned how it's supposed to work, but Aziraphale would like to think that he's not simply the first person who'd ever tried, the first person that had acknowledged Crowley as anything other than a hellish phantom. Though perhaps there's something more selfish there than Aziraphale wants to admit. Crowley is, there's no point in lying to himself, strangely lovely, and he can't help but notice. His many otherworldly angles, though they're often shrouded in darkness and trailed by the unendingly long mass of rust-red hair, are undoubtedly appealing. The narrow, graceful fluidity of him is fascinating to watch, the stretch of his bare limbs that are always warm against Aziraphale's own skin in the moments where Crowley brushes and leans and settles close to him. His eyes, luminous and striking in the dark, the thin, gently crooked smile that hides a tongue that will fork and lend his words a hiss when he's distracted or excited. Aziraphale sighs internally. He can be as poetic as he likes. The honest truth is that he desires the demon. How can he not? He'd tried to contain his thoughts at first, to leave them in his head, where they belonged, while Crowley slinks around him and sprawls beside him, voice a smooth, reassuring roll of questions and amusements and gentle teasing. Because Aziraphale had thought it deeply unfair to ruin what's been a perfectly lovely partnership, strange and unconventional as it may be. And besides... For all Crowley's strangely flirtatious and easy banter, the demon has never given any indication that he's interested in Aziraphale in that way. His excitable, affectionate manner could just as easily be enthusiasm for a friendship which he's never had before. It would be cruel of Aziraphale to ruin a friendship that Crowley clearly enjoys, to feed his own selfish needs. Aziraphale is a man long used to throwing cold water on his own desires, and he's no longer as young as he used to be. He's no longer as slim or as active as he was in his youth, when he would have considered his charms perfectly adequate, but nothing special. 
and even if Crowley did, even if he did harbor such feelings towards him, Aziraphale isn't sure that it's wise, not sure that it's fair on either of them. Oh, it's not that he's afraid Crowley would take advantage of him in his vulnerable state, because he is terribly vulnerable when Crowley visits, that much has always been true. No, for all his protests to the contrary, for all his sharpened, insistent reminders that he's a demon and he's made to be evil, Aziraphale doesn't believe he's that sort of brute. No, he's more afraid of how easy it would be to accept touches from him in the dark. The embarrassing knowledge of how quickly Aziraphale would say yes to the barest suggestion of intimacy that he would let Crowley take anything he wished from him. More importantly, he's afraid of how much it will hurt afterwards when his new friend inevitably leaves him. But in the end, he still thinks about it. He still entertains the thoughts because he's weak. He can't help himself. The days pass slowly, as opposed to the nights, which are often far too short. The customers remain, as always, a faint trickle that mostly browse his old, slowly filling shelves before occasionally purchasing a battered paperback from the section by the door. The collectors, the discerning, those smart enough to spot the genuine article, are more rare, but Aziraphale is even less likely to relinquish anything from his collection since the fire. So much of it had been lost, and the thought of parting with any more, it's almost as painful as the thought of putting it all in storage and packing it up for good. Perhaps he's more of a book museum than a shop these days, he decides, sadly, reluctant to do anything more than let visitors view the remains. The shop is lonely during the day, though in the long spaces between customers he reads Crowley long passages from the Count of Monte Cristo. He thinks the demon can't possibly disapprove of a complex tale of revenge, punishment, and disguises, also the occasional sword fight, which Aziraphale has decided is an era-appropriate substitution for a car chase. The only semi-regular company he has, other than Crowley, is Anathema, who works in the occult emporium not far from his shop. She seems to have adopted him in some way since the fire, even though he's probably twice her age. She insists it's because he looked as if he could use a friend. Ordinarily a lovely sentiment, but he's sometimes frustrated by how she often seems to take his well-being as a personal challenge no matter how many cups of tea he makes to distract her. She's quite stubborn and surprisingly practical for someone who sets stock in all sorts of occult paraphernalia, though Xerophil supposes he has no business taking such a dismissive tone in his head. He's being visited nightly by a demon, after all. He's been giving him book recommendations. He knows what he sounds like when he laughs, the way his mouth curls when he's protesting Aziraphale's choice of wine. He's felt the dragging, slithering slide of his living hair moving by itself. He's watched him smile, as if Aziraphale is the most fascinating thing in the world. Aziraphale sets his mug down, rather harder than he intends. 
There's an odd sort of tension to the shop, as if Crowley is somewhere in the spaces between the books, waiting to see where Aziraphale's strange mood is leading, which makes him feel restless and guilty. He could apologize, tell Crowley he'd been distracted, that he has a lot on his mind, inventory coming next week, taxes to be done, bills to be paid. But it would be a lie, and he doesn't want to lie to him. None of it presses upon his mind, quite like he's speaking before he means to, before he can talk himself out of it, voice strangely loud in the quiet of the shop. It's quite all right if you want to touch me. I really don't mind. There's an uncertain stillness to the air suddenly, as if the whole building is holding its breath. I know I can't make... make friendly overtures when we're together. That I can't reach out and touch you. Aziraphale can't imagine Crowley would have had many opportunities to touch anyone gently over the years and his nature makes it impossible for a human to touch him. He's not even certain if a demon would like something like that. It feels a very human thing to want. But he hates the thought that Crowley might think he's not allowed, that Aziraphale would reject his touch if it happened by accident. I don't know if it's something you want, but I thought I'd let you know that you could, if you wanted to, that I wouldn't mind that I wouldn't be offended or upset if you touched me. I think that I would like... Aziraphale wonders if he's being very brave or very stupid. I wouldn't mind. We're friends, after all. It's what friends do. Or if you wanted, if you wanted, whatever you want, I shall be happy. Liar, his brain tells him. The bookshop creaks for days. Aziraphale finds himself tossing in a restless sleep before waking tangled and frustrated in the sheets. There's no sign of Crowley, nothing but the tense, heavy air and the fall of dust from the high shelves that house books Aziraphale knows he should push the ladder towards and see to before they crumble to dust. There's no excuse for a lack of care, especially not now especially not when he has so many fewer books than before. He resolves to deal with them sooner rather than later. Oh, he knows perfectly well that he's simply distracting himself from Coley's absence. There's no way to argue that it wasn't something he'd said, something in the suggestion he'd made, that perhaps it had been a dreadful mistake to give so much away, or at least so quickly. The worst part is that he doesn't quite know how to apologize for it, how to take it back. For all that he'd wanted it, he never would have said anything if he'd known it would damage their relationship. The thought needles at him constantly. He doesn't feel confident trying to engage the demon in conversation. If he'd offended him, or angered him, or cruelly tempted him in some way, then it didn't seem fair to continue on, as if nothing had happened. Instead, he quietly adds a selection of books on botany to his personal collection, several illustrated books on space, so modern the pages are glossy and bright, and a few locked-room murder mysteries. 
He reasons that comes across as a clear enough apology without words, since Crowley has professed interest in all of them. It's not the dark middle of the night when Crowley finally comes to him. It's still early, the lamp still on, the sound of traffic still a faint suggestion outside. The demon is a hunch of awkward angles at the end of Xerophil's bed, farther away than he's been for a while, hair a fall of looping stillness over one shoulder. His narrow mouth is a line in the dark, eyes too big in his face, yellow bright around thin slits of pupil. His expression is angry, but there's something underneath it that definitely looks hurt, which wakes a deep sort of guilt in his fail. He feels Crowley's name curl around his tongue, a breath of worry and apology, but he can't loose it. He can't say a single word, unable to apologize or explain, and he hates how useless that makes him feel. The bed moves gently as Crowley pulls his feet under him, shifts up the mattress until Aziraphale can feel the bone of his knee, the heat of his skin over his bare arm. You lie in your bed looking like an angel, and tell me it's alright if I touch you? Crowley says darkly, before going abruptly quiet, narrow mouth twitching and something that looks like disgust. Aziraphale feels a moment of sinking misery at the thought that it's for him, until Crowley's dark red hair twists and then gently moves, spreading on the demon's skin like waves, pulling at the narrow cage of his ribs and his upper arms in a way that feels restless, as if he wants to reach out, to touch him, but knows that he shouldn't. See if I'm not one of the damned. Crowley finishes, like he thinks Aziraphale needed the reminder. Oh. Aziraphale has never so badly wanted to fight the binding that holds him, to lift an arm, reach out, cup that sharp face in his hand, and tell him that there is nothing in him that Aziraphale is disgusted by or afraid of. He deserves to let himself have things if he wants them. He wants to tell him that his affection... His desires won't ruin Aziraphale, that he feels the same way. Crowley is not the corrupt, unholy thing he thinks he is, not if he doesn't want to be. But he can't say any of it, all he manages is a soft, rushing trail of air, the gentlest punch of it leaving his body. Oh, Crowley. Crowley lifts his sharp, serpentine eyes all the same, head tilted as if he's heard the sentiment. He very slowly slithers higher, carefully settling himself over Aziraphale's knees. What do you want from me, Aziraphale? The question is frustrated, or something worse, something that sounds more desperate, as if there are too many ways Aziraphale could break him. What sort of touches do you imagine I would give you? Crowley's hands lift and spread suddenly on the curve of his waist, hot through the t-shirt Aziraphale had put on to sleep in. The shock of it, of the question in it, would have left him breathless if he had any control over that. Something like this? Crowley asks, but the words shake, feel uncertain and confused. 
Aziraphale can't answer, can't press into the touch, can't nod his head. He can't raise his arm and trail his fingers through that fire-red hair, feel the cool strands drag and slither between them. He can't press a thumb to the painful-looking frown lines between his eyes, can't smooth it out the way he'd like to. Crowley is on his own, has been on his own for so long, and Aziraphale hurts deeply for him. He should have been more clear, he should have explained. This is partially his fault. Do you mean this? It's quiet, as if Crowley honestly doesn't know. Is this what you want? There's the faint dig of sharp teeth into the fine line of Crowley's lower lip, eyes frantically searching his own, as if not knowing the answer is the worst thing imaginable. But what Aziraphale wanted wasn't the point. He should have been more clear. This isn't just about what he wants. What Crowley wants is just as important. What Crowley wants matters. Is it softness you're looking for? Something sweet and tender? Do you think I'm capable of that? The frown lines deepen. The gentle question is so honest, so raw, as if Crowley doubted it himself. The quiet drags on, unbearably, as if Crowley expects an answer, before he seems to remember that Aziraphale can't, and the thought seems to frustrate him. Or is roughness more to your taste? Crowley asks, voice and eyes suddenly sharp and intent. Is that what you're after? Do you dream of a demon stripping you against your pale sheets, pinning you down, leaving marks on your soft, human skin? He stops abruptly, as if he'd shocked himself. His hands are now clenched at his thighs, and he seems to realize, to forcibly unfold his fingers, the dark shadow of something wet and coppery beneath. Crowley stares at him for what feels like an age, the frown on his face making him look tired, and ancient. He's quiet for so long that Aziraphale fears the frozen moment will end in this tense, wounded place, until Crowley heaves a breath, and then shakes his head. I'm sorry, Angel. I didn't mean. There's a gap for all the things he didn't mean. It goes unfulfilled. I've never touched anyone before, he says eventually, far more quietly, trying to pull himself back together again. Not like this. Not sure I know how to do it right. All I've ever done is smother the wicked in their sleep. There's a simple honesty to the words. I'd sit on their chests and push fear into them, whispering all their guilty secrets until they go mad or die, suffocating in their own sins. That's how I touch people. That's the only way I know how to touch people. Crowley stops, shakes his head again. I don't... I don't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to touch you like you want to be touched. Deserve to be touched. Aziraphale wishes desperately that he could open his mouth, that he could express everything he's feeling, anything that he's feeling, reassure the demon that he's proven himself to be nothing like the books would have people believe, that if he collects souls for hell, 
then surely he does it reluctantly, does it unwillingly, feels the unholy weight of it. There's a rustle of fabric, a shuffling of knees, as Crowley resettles his weight across the width of Aziraphale's thighs. I don't know how to touch you like I want to, he admits, and Aziraphale can't help the way his breath shakes out a little, at the realization that maybe he's not the only one of them who'd gotten far more attached than he'd meant to. But the fact that you would ask me to... Aziraphale hates the way Crowley sounds so hopeless, as if what he'd suggested was impossible, unthinkable, that if Crowley even tries, he'll ruin this quiet, affectionate comfort they've both found in each other. He can't bear the stillness of his own hands, the way they can't even scratch feebly at the sheets, let alone lift to give comfort. The way Aziraphale can't breathe Crowley's name, tell him that he's sorry, tell him that he never intended to make him feel this way. He so very badly wants to reach out, he wants to touch the sharply angled cheek, the awkward curve of his jaw, the fine line of his mouth that's finally comfortable, smiling for him. Aziraphale's eyes feel wet and tight, the sight of the demon suddenly wavering, and he blinks fiercely refusing to let his own feelings hide Crowley from him. Crowley frowns down at him, seemingly drawn to the frantic motion. He stares for a long second, looking confused and guilty, until he seems to understand all at once, eyes going wide in startled realization. The uncertainty melts away, leaving a surprised hope in its place, leaving him exactly as he is, narrow and crooked, all angles and piercing serpentine eyes. The scent of brimstone and blood and tin. The demon bends slowly, his back a long and beautiful curve, shoulder blades shifting up as he falls. He presses his hot mouth to his ear fails a shivery, hungry noise breaking out of him. Aziraphale can't kiss him back, but the sensation is magnificent all the same. For a first kiss, it's perfect. <laughs> 